Well, good morning, everyone. It's really great to see you on this another beautiful day in the neighborhood, right? <laughs> hey, we're um, continuing our series today, um, You Drive Me Crazy, which I think is a great title for a message series. I just love that. <laughs> um, it's a series about relationships, and one of the things that we surely can count on um, when it comes to relationships is they're bound to be conflict, right? We're going to run into conflict. And when I think about conflict, uh, I can't help about thinking about the bitter rivalry between the Hatfields and the McCoys. There they are right there. Yeah. I love the little guy on the right there with his little pistol. He's ready to go. Holy cow. So the Hatfield-McCoy feud, it all started in the Tug River Valley. And it's a a river valley that separates Kentucky from West Virginia. And uh, the Hatfields were led by this gentleman named William Devil Ants. That was his nickname, Hatfield. The McCoys were led by the honorary old patriarch, Randall McCoy. And tensions started to rise when each of these families served on opposite sides of the Civil War. And when Asa McCoy came back wounded from the Union Army, he was only home a couple weeks when they found him murdered. And rumor was that old Devil Ants and his confederate wildcats had done the job well it rose to another level when all of a sudden randall mccoy accused floyd hatfield of stealing his prize pig <laughs> went to trial and on the jury were six hatfields and six mccoys as you can imagine those set up holy moly well this trial ended up in a gun battle because of the fact that one of the mccoys jumped ship and voted with the hatfields because His boss, a Hatfield, had threatened him with losing his job. So the pig trial ended up in a gun battle. Well, a couple years after this uh, trial over who stole the pig, it ended up that Devil Ants' son, John, went to a dance, and he spied the young Roseanne McCoy, who happened to be his arch rival's daughter. And the two of them started making googly eyes at each other, Took a liking to each other, started secretly hiding out and spending time together. Then they came to their families and announced, we want to get married. (laughs) And as you can imagine, the families want to have nothing to do with that. And so they forbid it. But not too long after that, old Roseanne, well, she ended up pregnant. And uh, she left the McCoy family and moved in with the Hatfields for a little while until John reneged on his promise to marry her. Then she went back to her McCoy family. They rejected her, threw her out. The baby died of measles. And on and on this fight went back and forth with fist fights and knifings and shootings until just about everybody in the family was either dead or in jail. And the rivalry finally just started to die out after a while. Now that is conflict gone wild. And uh, hopefully you don't have conflict right like that. Um, for me personally, uh, I don't have a McCoy and Hatfield uh, type of life. But I am really, really surprised at myself at how many times I can undermine my relationships over the smallest and simplest of things. Uh, in fact, I um, often get discouraged about how prideful I can be and how selfish. And while I'm not likely to steal a pig, I am very likely to steal the last piece of bacon. Yep. <laughs> so uh, what do you do when the person who drives you most crazy in your relationships is you? You know, it's much easier to blame it on somebody else and just think, you know, if they just got their act together, things would go a lot smoother, you know, but we can't fix other people. 
We could try. Um, I speak from experience. That doesn't go so well. And uh, to be honest with you, I can't fix anyone else. And I'm not even all that great at fixing myself. And what really makes relationships difficult for all of us is that every relationship that we're in always involves at least two sinners. Have you noticed that? And we have to deal with the fact that our real problem in relationships is not that some people are unhealthy, but that all of us are unholy. See, sin is the ultimate source of the conflict in our relationships. And at its core, sin is anti-relationship. Sin destroys relationships. And sin, well, it's much more than just what we do. Um, It's part of who we are. It's at our very core of our being. It comes from our heart. There's a great passage in Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. It says this. This is God's evaluation of our heart. He says, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. Jesus told us in in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, he said that what we say flows from what's in our heart. Sin destroys our relationship with God. (laughs) It wreaks havoc on our relationship with one another. And it seems kind of hopeless, actually, when you think about it. But the good news is that God offers to take away our sin. And not only that, but he offers to give us a new heart, his heart, a heart of God that he says he'll place inside of us. And so that we can love others and love him the way that we were created to be. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 says, I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I will take away your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender and responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you'll follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. It's a beautiful promise from the Old Testament that God fulfilled in the New Testament. When on Pentecost, he took his Holy Spirit and he put it in human beings, in people who receive their forgiveness of their sins through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. The very spirit of God becomes our new heart. And it's with that new heart that we're able to love others and empathize with them. So when Pastor Ron began our series a couple of weeks ago, he defined empathy as turning, or I'm sorry, tuning into what someone else feels validating the bigness of it and responding with compassion. And nobody, nobody empathizes better than Jesus. I mean, Jesus, he could read people's minds, their thoughts. He knows the deepest issues of their heart, what lies deep down, sometimes things that we're not even in touch with. And he addresses the deep needs of the heart. See, my problem is when I get into a situation I think I'm the one who kind of understands what people's motives are. And I kind of feel like I know what they need. Kind of gets you in a heap of trouble, though. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, really. I figure I got it all figured out. But what we really need is to have the mind and the heart of Jesus. And as a matter of fact, that's the first thing you can fill in. In in your program there, there's an outline, a message outline. And the first point is this. That the key to expressing empathy 
is having the heart and the mind of Jesus. God gives us his heart. Just read that. He puts his heart in us. 1 Corinthians 2.16 also tells us that we have the mind of Christ. <laughs> Last week, um, Pastor John mentioned that knowing our identity determines our behavior. And so we're going to talk this morning about how a new identity in Christ can help us to love others and empathize with them. And so if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open it to the uh, book of Colossians, chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 12. That's our key text this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, don't worry. No worries at all. The um, verses will be up here on the screen, and you can leave it, uh, read along. And I just invite you, maybe next time you come in, just grab a lobby Bible out there in the lobby before you come in. So we're going to talk specifically about how can I display the love and empathy of Jesus to others? How can I do that? And one of the first things that Paul tells us we can do, he says this. He says, I live with an eternal focus instead of a worldly mindset. An eternal focus instead of a worldly mindset. Um, one of the reasons that we don't become the people that God designed and created us to be is that we don't really intently focus on the things that are most important in life. And focus is so important, isn't it? I mean, focus determines the direction and the quality of our life. It directs our decisions, everything that we do, what we focus on. And so Paul tells us in Colossians 3, 1 and 2, he says, Since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven and not the things of earth. See, Paul tells us that when we receive Christ, we actually um, become new citizens. We're no longer citizens of earth, but we're citizens of heaven. Yes, we now are extraterrestrials, <laughs> completely otherworldly. And the focus on heaven is so important. He says, direct our thoughts in that direction. Because, see, to focus on heaven is to focus on Christ who rules in heaven. It's viewing all things and all people and every situation in the life that we encounter through Jesus' eyes, through an eternal perspective. There's such a huge difference between viewing ourselves as citizens of earth who serve ourselves or citizens of heaven who serve Jesus. A heavenly perspective helps us view people in a whole different way. And uh, it helps us to treat them differently. You know, Jesus sees people as eternal beings who were created by God. Broken by sin. Dearly and deeply loved and worth dying for. I mean, think about it. Is there anything that Jesus valued more than God and people? So how do we get this heavenly perspective, this viewpoint that directs everything that we do? Well, I read and study and apply God's word regularly to sharpen my eternal focus and to nurture the fruit of God's love in my life. God uses this incredible gift of his word that he's given to us 
to transform our thinking so that we think completely differently. And when we think different, we act different. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this. Paul wrote, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. This truly is the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into the new person by changing the way you think. And then you'll learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Our mind is transformed by God's living, powerful word. And there's several ways that we can regularly expose ourselves to God's word. You know, we have these cool bookmarks that are out there in the lobby. And you can pick one up and it's got a Bible reading plan on it. And by being in there every day and taking the discipline to do that, it just enriches and brings joy to your life. There are several tools online. And one of the things that I use is called uversion.com. Many different reading plans. And uh, you get so much from that. Sometimes you can just press a button and if you, you know, it'll actually read it to you. you know, maybe you're sitting and brushing your teeth. I did that this morning. I just pressed it and read God's word to me. Amazing. Technology, amazing. <laughs> you can pick up a daily Bible over here in the bookstore, but feast on God's word. There is no reliable source anywhere in the world that would immerse you and tell you about the character of God, about the promises of heaven that will transform your life like the living, active, powerful word of God. Second, Paul tells us that we should do this. I let my old life die and I live my new life in Christ, in Jesus Christ. We all have this temptation to, uh, to get pulled back into our old life, you know, a life without Jesus. The old life is kind of represented by the idea that I'm the boss, I call the shots, I'm the captain of my ship, you know, we're driven by our own, you know, selfish desires, really, to be our own God. Years ago, um, I was a, a resident counselor for drug-addicted youth. Um, this is what I did right out of college. And one of my responsibilities was to take these teenagers to Narcotics Anonymous meetings. And uh, those were wild. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, people would share their stories. And um, most people were just so broken over their old life and the things that they did and how it hurt them and their families. But every once in a while, there'd be someone that would share. And when they talked about the old days... Their eyes would get big, and they talked about these crazy escapades where they'd get behind the wheel totally drunk and just drive all over the place and run over things and hold up convenience stores in order to buy money for drugs. Or even, I remember a story of a guy said he pounded his hand with a hammer in order to break it so that he could get pain medication. And on and on it would go, and you could tell, even though they wouldn't say it, they really missed their old life. But they forgot that it was that old life that killed their family, that ruined their self-image, and that chained them to addiction. And it wouldn't be too many weeks until they'd walk away and go back to their old ways. And we can be tempted often to be looking in that rearview mirror at our old life and remembering those times with a little fondness in our heart. And Paul says, let the old life die. Let it go and start living your new life in Jesus Christ. He says in Colossians 3, verses 3 and 4, 
For you died to this life. And your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in his glory. Wow. Paul tells us that there's a death that takes place when we receive Jesus at salvation. It's a death to the old life. It's symbolized in baptism when we're buried to the old life and resurrected to new life in Christ. He says, in, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. New things. He says our old Our new life, our real life, is hidden with Christ in God. What does that mean? It means that believers in Jesus share a common life with Jesus. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 17, that the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1, 4, that believers are partakers of the divine nature. We're assured that Christ not only gives us life, but he is our life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Galatians 2.20 says, I, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. So why in the world would anybody discard that old, broken, selfish life? I'm sorry, discard their new life in Christ and everything that that means and everything they've been given and pursue that old, broken, selfish, sinful life. Why would anybody do that? But we do that, don't we? You know, sin is deceptive and uh, such a lure over our life. But there's great power in the spirit that God has given us in this new identity in Jesus. And so the question is, how do I access that power? And that's this. I choose to surrender my will to God daily and ask the Holy Spirit to lead me. Choose to surrender my will to God daily and ask the Holy Spirit to lead me. What Jesus died for, I think we need to realize this. What we're saved from is our rebellion against God. And what we're saved to is obedience to God. Now, we hate that word obedience, right? I mean, just hear that, and it's like, ah, obedience. You know, our old flesh... It just fights against that word obedience. You know, it's kind of like a toddler in Walmart. No! <laughs> but it's only through obeying Jesus Christ that we find peace and joy and blessing. And the key to obedience is surrender. It's surrender. Jesus uh, said to his disciples in Matthew 16 and 24 and 25, if anyone wishes to come to me, He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
Jesus said, deny yourself. That means surrender, right? Giving up selfishness, giving up the right to rule and reign and follow our own way. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus also told his disciples, when you pray to the Father, say this, your will be done. It's surrender. It's asking that God's will be done in our life. Giving up our own will, letting go of control, and asking God to direct our path and to show us the way. And that's not just a one-time decision. That's not just a one-time thing. It's a daily commitment, a daily commitment. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I die daily. We need to surrender our will to God and ask the Holy Spirit to lead us. God, I give you my heart. I give you my body. I give you the things I want to do. I lay it all at your feet. I surrender to you. Holy Spirit, lead me. Give me new desires. Show me what you want to do. Empower me to walk with you today. All right, number three. I put sin in me to death. (laughs) I put sin in me to death. We totally underestimate the heinous and deadly nature of sin. It's kind of like taking home a lion as a pet. Seriously. I was watching this YouTube video of this couple from Russia this week, and they took this baby cub lion and brought it into their home, made a little bed, stuck a little cat collar on it, played with it like a kitty cat. Problem was, it wasn't a kitty. (laughs) It was a lion. And as that kitty grew up and became a big lion, one day it turned on him and attacked him and mauled him. Now, I wanted to show you this YouTube video, but I got outvoted. (laughs) It was a little intense, but it proved an incredible point. And the point is this, that we cannot play with sin and not expect it to turn on us. You know, sin can play nice for years, and we think it's under control. We think we've domesticated it, but then it lashes out at us, destroys everything, that we've built, everything that we've cherished, everything that we've loved. And so Paul tells us this in Colossians 3, 5 to 9. Paul says, So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these things and these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still apart from this world, was still part of this world, but now it's time to get rid of anger and rage and malicious behavior and slander and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you've stripped off your old sinful nature and all of its wicked deeds. We have to ask ourselves, Do I have a pet sin? Do I have some sin that I've invited into my house and that I've cozied up to? Paul's warning us. He says, sin is not tame. It's deadly. It will destroy you. And as we said before, sin is anti-relationship. We cannot harbor sin in our life and a selfish heart and expect to love 
and empathize with others. Part of our great American heritage were the Puritans. And one of the Puritans, Richard Baxter, wrote this. He said, use sin as it will use you. Spare it not, for it will not spare you. It is your murderer and the murderer of the world. Kill it before it kills you. (laughs) So how do we kill sin? Well, I avoid sin purposefully and deal with sin aggressively. When we trust in Jesus Christ... We are given new spiritual life. But until we get to heaven, we live out that new spiritual life in these old, broken bodies. What the Bible calls our flesh. (laughs) Our flesh includes all of the sinful desires and drives and passions associated with our humanness. And see, our our humanness, our flesh is drawn to sin, kind of like a moth to a lantern. I remember as a kid going camping, we got those old Coleman lanterns, and you see the moss, and you're like, "Uh uh-oh, here it comes, here it is. (laughs) (laughs) That's why we must stay away from sin. That's why we need to yield to the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome it. We need wide boundaries. We need tough guardrails to keep us from sin and temptation have to purpose in our heart to stay clear and not get close. You know, when sin came grasping at Joseph, he ran, he ran, he ran away, ran to God. So run away. Delete it. Get it out of your home. Move away from it. A couple years ago, um, I gave a message as a youth pastor, and it was on sexual purity. And I remember one of the kids, he had this wild look in his eyes afterwards, and he went home. He took a sledgehammer to his computer. (laughs) It was expensive. It cost him something. But how many of us would give $700 to avoid a pornography addiction? What price have you paid for playing with sin? We need to kill sin in our life. We got to cut off the source. We need to leave it and walk away. Because if you think freedom is having the ability to do whatever you want to, that is the quickest way to slavery. True freedom is living a God-filled and pure life in his joy and his blessing with no regrets. Romans 8, 13 and 14 tells us that the spirit who raised Jesus Christ lives in you. Use that power to overcome temptation and to defeat sin in your life. And if you do get caught in sin, repent of it. Turn away from it. Deal with it. Kill sin before it kills you. It's so worth the battle. Because on the other side of our battle with sin are new hopes and new dreams and new desires. It's the hope of a Christ-filled life. So, fourthly, I clothe myself with Christ. I clothe myself with Christ. 
uh, as a boy, I remember um, my mom would take us kids and she'd load us up in the station wagon. <laughs> and uh, she'd take us all to Sears to go get new school clothes. And uh, it was wonderful. I never admitted this to my mom, but getting new school clothes, it actually made me look forward to going to school. I mean, getting a brand new pair of Levi's, you know, sporting a new OP shirt. I, mean, I felt like a new man, you know. I could walk into school with a strut in my step. New stuff, new man. And Paul says, just like putting on new clothes, we need to clothe ourselves in our identity in Christ. He says in Colossians 3, 10 to 12, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourself with tender-hearted mercy and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Paul encourages us to be renewed as we wrap ourselves in this beautiful, glorious relationship that we've been given as a gift to be in Christ. Clothe ourselves with it. A life immersed in God's love that transforms us and enables us to share his love with others. So how do we experience this life? Well, I surround myself with Christ and I make him my greatest affection. Union with the risen Christ means that everything else is nailed to the cross. That Jesus is all that matters and loving him is the biggest desire of my heart. And that I want to honor him with all of my life. It's kind of such a simple but profound truth. It deals with the heart. It deals with the heart because when our heart is connected to Jesus deeply, strongly, passionately, then we want to follow him and we want to please him and we want to honor him with our life and we want to be with him. And it goes from being a burden to being the greatest joy in our life. The Spirit's given full freedom in our life to move within us and help us and guide us and move our mind and our heart so that we can love others with that passion, the heart and mind of Jesus. A few weeks ago, Pastor Ron, um, he read to us these incredible words. It was a great message uh, from Jesus in John 15, 4 and 5. And Jesus says, remain in me. And I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine. And you can't be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus says that when our heart is connected to him, that will produce not just a little fruit, but abundant fruit. And what is that fruit? It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and, se- and gentleness and self-control. Those are all relational things. You see, the relationships that we want come from the fruit. We bring that to the fruit of the Spirit. We bring all of those attributes to our life. Our relationships are transformed. We can deepen our our heart connection and our love for Jesus by meditating 
on the incredible attributes of God that are spoken about in the Psalms. And we can trust in his power and that he'll get us through any trial and everything that we face. We enlarge our faith and believe. And we seek to be with him in every moment with all of our heart and to live our life with him. And when we live in this new life in Christ, it does. It brings a whole new dimension to all of our relationships. And there's a little less crazy me and a lot more Jesus me that we can love others with. Let's pray. Lord, it, um, it amazes us. We come, we talk about and sing about this salvation that you've given to us. We forget that you loved us even when we didn't love you. That while we were sinners, that you died for us. God, there's some in this room and they've so desperately looked for meaning in this life. They've been searching, they've been tired. They've been broken. They live with regret. And God, I pray that you open their hearts to the truth of your words. And they can have their sins forgiven through the payment that was made by Jesus Christ on the cross. And there's nothing that they can do to deserve it. But they can, Lord, to reach out and just grab your hand and say, God, I don't understand all this. But Lord, if this is true, I give you my heart. Forgive me of my sin. Take me in as your child. Make me new. And God, some of us are here and our hearts are broken with regret. There are things controlling our life. There's sin that's tearing us down. God, I pray that you give those that are in that situation a new hope. And give them courage to not go this alone. And maybe they need to march themselves over to the Celebrate Recovery table and just say, okay, it's time. I'm tired of being locked in the darkness. And I'm going to walk in the light. I'm going to take that scary step of faith and realize that I need help with being chained to a life of sin. And God, more than anything, I pray that you just draw our hearts near to you. That you help us to love you with all of our heart and mind and soul so that all that we do for you, God, comes out of a spirit of joy. And we invite you to do that work in us. In Jesus' name. Amen.